Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. The homestead sends out a call for help to the hospital a hundred miles away. On the air from 6am to 10pm every day, the wireless operator at the base station of Australian Aerial Medical Services takes the call and sends a message to the flying doctor. This from a 1941 film clip on the Australian screen website of the National Film and Sound Archives entitled Mission of Mercy about the Australian Aerial Medical Service, the AAMS, affectionately known as the Flying Doctor. The AAMS, of course, was the forerunner of what we now know as the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And you'll note that the narrator refers to the doctor as he, because, well, 1941... He is as accessible as a suburban practitioner and proceeds immediately to listen to a description of the sick man's symptoms. He then tells the station what to do to ease the patient until he arrives. In the meantime, the doctor's bag is being packed he phones his pilot to prepare his plane for an urgent trip and the pilot studies the route to be taken. In but a very few minutes, the flying doctor is in the air on his mission of mercy. Hello and welcome to Mac One, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum, Caloundra. My name is Gary Hills. I am a QAM volunteer and I'll be your host for this second of our featured Restoration Projects episode. The first was about the restoration of our Mark I Spitfire representation, and the next, coming within a month or so, will be looking at our Lockheed Neptune restoration. But for the next 25 minutes or so, you're going to hear from the team of volunteers working steadily week by week to restore our de Havilland Drover, formerly in service with the Royal Flying Doctor Service, the RFDS, and you'll hear from a man who flew this very aircraft when he was a pilot with TAA and the RFDS between 1956 and 1964. If you'd like to see photos of the drover and the team members, head over to the Mac one Hangar on Facebook and join the group. Now, the Drover was a three-engine, low-wing aircraft built in Australia, when Australia used to do such things. Our airframe, FDR, is painted in the RFDS livery. Very bold, yet business-like colour scheme. The fuselage was white over silver, with a red and royal blue strip along each side, interrupted by a large red Maltese cross. So let's begin with the current restoration team leader, Chris Weingarth. Standing here in the workshop at the Queensland Air Museum with Chris Weingarth. G'day, Chris. 
Morning, Gary. How are you, mate? I'm really good. Thanks for asking. And I'm standing here with you looking at a magnificent project. We, uh, what, what is this aircraft? The de Havilland Drover. Uh, there's about 20 of them built. All the Australian design and built. This was number six, I think it was, off the assembly line, built in 1951. Um, originally for TAA, then the Flying Doctors. Okay, and I see the Royal Flying Doctor Service livery is is uh, painted on. Beautiful job, you know, of getting the paintwork uh, up to scratch. So is is this the uh, the livery it was flying in when it came to the end of its career? Correct. Yes, it was flying doctor when it had an accident at Sagamendra, 1966, and um, that's the end of its flying career. What happened in Thargamindra in 1966? Uh, take off out of um, out of and. Um, Went off the edge of the runway and hit a rock or a st- pillars or something and did a, quite a bit of substantial, substantial damage to the right-hand nose air, air part of the aircraft. And after that it was out of service? Yes, out of service. That, that finishes life flying career, yes. Okay. The Flying Doctor Services have surely provided a mantle of safety for the people of the outback. Almost as quickly as you could obtain medical help in a populated area, the Flying Doctor and his nurse are with the patient. After temporary treatment, he is placed on the special stretcher and removed to the aerial ambulance, which is capable of landing on and taking off from small aerodromes. Before the trip back to the base, the doctor gives instructions by wireless to the inland hospital to prepare for the patient so that no time is lost in receiving attention. Within four hours of the first report, the patient has been called for, transported 100 miles by air, six miles by road, and is about to be operated on. Without the flying doctor, this man would undoubtedly have died. Once again, that soundtrack is from a 1941 film clip, Mission of Mercy. Now, for listeners who may not know, the Royal Flying Doctor Service, to which we will devote an entire future episode, was conceived by the Reverend John Flynn, who came to be known as Flynn of the Outback, and indeed our drover 5006 is named John Flynn. Flynn was a Presbyterian minister superintending the Australia Inland Mission. Flynn saw the need for medical care to cover the vast Australian outback and he believed that the solution was to establish a flying medical service. The first flight of the aerial medical service was in 1928 from Cloncurry in Queensland. The Flying Doctor Service received Royal Assent in 1955 and it continues to this day as a highly respected service throughout Australia. This aircraft would have been the, 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 a, a very welcome sight, wouldn't it, as it arrived at properties and uh, in various uh, rural communities when people were needing medical attention. Oh, that is for sure. You, uh, you need a doctor, you need him, need him in a hurry. and. Uh quickest way to get there by flight and uh, back to the hospitals and those sort of things. They had stretchers in, in, a stretcher in board to uh, take the passengers to the hospital if needed. 
And was it a good aircraft fitted for that kind of, uh, of service? A little bit underpowered, I believe, for the, um, for the Queensland heat. Originally it had uh, Gypsy Major engines, and uh, about 1961 they upgraded them to Lycoming engines, which are lighter weight and uh, a bit more power. But the driver itself is a three-engine aircraft, one in the nose, one on each wing. It's a tail dragger, fixed undercarriage. Okay, so let's. why don't you just talk me through what's going on here today? What actual part of the project are you working on today? I'm working in the cockpit. I've been the last few months working in the cockpit. A lot of people to thank. Um, John and Christine, radio people here, they've done a magnificent job of uh, uh, overhauling the, uh, the uh, dashboard, the instrument panels. Yep. They've been fitted. Just going back a bit earlier, the, um, the, the paint scheme you see here, fantastic paint scheme, was put on by uh, Mick and Richard. Painters here, they've done a magnificent job. Uh, the part of the interior was done by Gerald, put the floorboards in and part of the sidewall up there. Um, our resident upholsterer done a magnificent job of the, um, the ceiling panels and the, with the upholstery and just, just uh, did a seat, covered a seat for us for the, for the captain's seat which was um, handmade by one of other blokes, uh, Dennis Bugani. He um, manufactured the seat and Tony's covered it for us. Yeah. Tony's also reconditioned the, the tail, uh, tail wheel for us and they did a magnificent job repairing the, uh, the damage that was done in Sagaminda. And I believe an actual gypsy major that's not in running condition has been refitted to the nose so Correct. that you, it will look uh, authentic uh, for those who are looking at it. Definitely look authentic, that's for sure, but uh, it won't run. Okay. And what, what will happen with the engines that were in the wings? What, what's the plan there? We only have partial set of cowlings for the wing engines. So some of the fairings will have to be manufactured fiberglass and fitted to make it look pretty. And uh, from the external, it looked like a real engine with a propeller and exhaust pipes. And uh, So uh, a visitor coming in will see it uh, as it looked uh, when it was in service with the RFDS. You've made some great progress. How do you feel about the progress? What do you think is the, uh, the likely time when she might be ready to go on display? Uh, hard question to answer. Um, it, over the last few months, been very little visual progress because it's all been internal in the, in the cockpit. But um, now that's almost completed in there, we can move it out to the grass area out here and uh, then we can attach the wings and, um, and the tail feathers. They've got to go on as well. And it would be good to see it fitted out with the stretcher and, and equipment and so on. Uh, do you have a, a plan to put in the kinds of medical kit that was in there? We're trying to get some from the Flying Doctor Service. They, um, our president here has been in contact with them and uh, some of their surplus equipment could be available to us to put on display here. All right, well, thank you very much, Chris, and good on you for the work that you guys do here. It's a long, slow process, isn't it? And as you say, it sometimes doesn't look like much is getting done, but you're always working on it. We look forward to the day when it's on display and people can come and talk about the history of the Royal Flying Doctor Service as well as this particular aircraft, the de Havilland Rover. Thank you. No worries, mate. Thank you. I then made my way into the Drover cockpit to have a look at the work that John Gould and Christine Wenberg had been doing on the refurbished instrument panels. John is currently the QAM Vice President and was an Air Force instrument fitter for many years. After that, I spoke with upholsterer Tony Collinson about the cabin restoration. 
So, John, can you explain to me, uh, I'm looking at the instrument panel here in the Drover. You've been working on this. Um, how long has this project been happening? Oh, it's probably been going on for about 18 months, two years um, plus. Uh, and, it, and it's looking really schmick, I have to say. Uh, are you getting close to where you feel like it's, it's finished? Uh, getting there, nearly getting there. We've got a few more holes to fill and a little bit more painting and uh, a couple of other, a couple of other instruments to put, to put in. Yeah. So how do you go about, I mean, obviously you know what the instrument panel uh, comprised and what it looked like because of the original, but how do you get it up to this the standard here? Have you, do you have to source new instruments? No, we have, um, this is the original panels out of it. Um, I did a bit of research on the internet looked at it, the various drovers and what the instrumentation, but there are ver variations of it. But we've cr tried to keep back to the original fitment to this aircraft of the instrument panel, uh, as I saw it 12 years ago when it was over in the uh, hangar, th uh, hangar 2, uh, sitting under the wing of the DC-3. Um, and I had looked at it then and I thought, well, that needs some good, a lot of work on it. So we removed the instrument panels right out. Uh, majority of them are the original instruments, but we've had to uh, make up a couple to fill holes. <laughs> and you've obviously had to fashion the actual panels themselves to put the instruments in, is that right? No, the panels are the original That's fitment. The original. Oh. original fitment, yes. Okay. It's great to have an original, original fitment of uh, an instrument panel. No, they were here originally. Okay. I had a good resource of, of instruments upstairs. Um, so majority of them were there and it was just uh, looking at them and seeing that they were that vintage uh, instrument which, was, which were um, vacuum operated, not electrically operated, apart from your compasses and um, like a battery or a power supply ones, yeah. And when the Drover is finally finished and out on display for the public, um, if we were to have open cockpit days, would people be able to come in and have a look at this close-up? Yep, come here and sit in the seat. Uh, but we're going to protect them by putting a uh, um, piece of perspex across the front of them because they have been known to somebody with little fingers and poking at them and glasses on the old glasses, not so secure in the instruments, they get pushed back in. Yeah. Yes, I imagine they're quite delicate and uh, very hard to replace if they get damaged. <laughs> exactly right, yes. How long have you been volunteering at the Queensland Air Museum? About 12 years we've been here. Uh, I first initially, uh, when I saw this area here about um, 20 years ago when my grandsons were uh, over at the um, the school over the road and they brought them over here for a day through here and I came through with them and I set my mind on when I retired that I was going to come here and volunteer and bring my grandchildren with me. Now you're currently the Vice President of the QAM. Um, what's your background? Do you have a, a, an aviation background? I had 20 years in the RAAF as an instrument fitter. Uh, worked on various aircraft, most of them in the hangar there I've worked on and I look at them nostalgically <laughs> yeah. uh, because you, you get to like these aircraft and you love working around them as I did.
Yeah, and that's why I'm so glad to be here working on these aeroplanes. You had a fair bit of time with the Hercules, I think. That's right. I had uh, about seven years at uh, Richmond, Richmond Air Force Base, number 36 Squadron on A Model Hercs and 37 on E Model Hercs. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the affection or the, you know, feeling a little bit sentimental or attached to these right. aircraft and uh, I can imagine that that's the case. It's a big part of your life and you're putting a lot of your talent and work into them. That's correct, yeah. The minute you step into the cockpit of an aeroplane and it all floods back to you, having spent hours and days, weeks even, fixing up aeroplanes and in the, in the back in the 50s and 60s where it was all hands-on doing repairing instruments yeah well thanks very much john for talking to me and uh, the reason you're working on the instrument panel i've just realized is, is that you were an instrument fitter that was what you did <laughs> i didn't know that so that, that makes perfect sense all we need now i suppose is a hercules here at the qam i <laughs> would love to have one here yes yeah. yeah all right thanks very much john all right thanks gary G'day Tony. I believe you've been uh, involved in the Drover project, particularly with the interior, the uh, the upholstery in, in particular, I believe. Yeah, yeah, we've um, been putting a new headline in, in, the, in the Drover. Right. Um, one of the things, we, when we first started, all the timber work was rotted. So Chris and I pulled all the timber work out. When we looked inside, a lot of the timber, the, the, the headline has to be stapled onto. It was all rotted, so we had the thought of replacing all the timber, but originally it was steamed and bent to, to actually take the shape, but we couldn't really, we don't have a steamer, so what we did, we used plywood and shaped the timber to go round the curves in, in, inside. Um, that was basically so we could staple these headlining pieces together. And basically, we just started from the front, worked our way back. It's looking fantastic mate, you, you, so you're getting very close to finishing that? Well the, most of the headlining's done, we've, we've, all we've got to do, we've got to put a little pe couple of pieces down the side there just to cover them gaps yeah. and we found on a photograph um, we, we've got to make a decision whether we're going to put a strip of uh, aluminium covered in the vinyl between the window frames because that was originally how it was done. We saw it on a photograph or leave it as it is at the moment. And did you do the upholstery on the seat as well? Yeah, they made a frame and I had to cover it. Yeah. We, we've tried to keep it similar to what the photographs of the of the Drover we've got. Yeah. Um, uh, we've got a couple of photographs there of, of, of a seat and we tried to kind of keep it similar to what was originally in the, in the plane. Uh, is there anything, are there any special techniques with upholstering inside a, a fuselage as opposed to upholstery elsewhere? We did have a bit of a hassle up the front when we first did it. What it was, I didn't realise that the front actually tapered. So when I put it in the first time, it wouldn't fit. And I'm going, why can't it? Because I started the front working backwards, which was what the idea was originally. It was um, tapered to the front, so we had to put a new piece in and go from the back to the front, the other than going from, that was the only, the only hassle we had. And once we, we, I realized what the problem was, it went in great. And what's your background in, in aviation or in trade? <clears throat> aviation, zero. Um, upholstery, my dad did it for years. Uh, car seats, um, headlines on yep. cars, obviously. 
Well, you know what I like about that is the fact that as a volunteer here, you can bring your skills and your experience. Whether you have an aviation background or not is kind of not really the point, is it? You're, you're able to contribute as part of a team yeah. to a project. I've never, never not had anything to do. It, it, there's always work to be done. There's always, I now have a list on the board and I call it the wish list. You're going to wish you're going to get that done sometime. Or other. Yeah. If people are listening and they, they have a particular skill, be it woodwork, be it metalwork, be it upholstery, be whatever it is, uh, you know, we'd be welcoming them here if they wanted to come and volunteer and help out on one of the teams for a day or two a week or something like that. Well, look, thank you. I just wanted to hear your voice as part of the team. Um, and uh, thanks for your time. Not a problem. Before we get to Stuart Spensley, I did ask Christine Wenberg if she was willing to have a chat about her role on the team. She has assisted John Gould with the instrument refit and with other tasks, but she preferred not to say anything. So let me make this point. Don't forget, ladies, if you're listening, the QAM workshop is not a men's shed. It's a great place to work and to experience some real camaraderie together working on the most fascinating projects. And it isn't exclusively for the blokes. So if you're interested and you're skilled or at least comfortable using tools, you'd be very welcome to join in the serious fun. Finally, it was a great delight to chat with a man who actually commanded this Drover aircraft as part of a very long flying career with TAA. Stuart currently works on the fabricing of various airframe control surfaces around the museum and is currently volunteering with the Tiger Moth restoration team. But I got a few minutes with him recently to talk about his days flying the Drover. Stuart, it's good to meet you. You flew this Drover. Yes, its, it's original registration was DRB when it was based in Charleville and I flew it out of Charleville. I was based out there permanently on, I was a first officer, and uh, I was based out there for two years on the Channel Country DC-3. But after a short time, they endorsed me on the Drover, so I flew, we used to swap around fortnight about with the, with the other pilot there that was assigned to flying doctor work. But then in other times, I'd be sent to Charters Towers and Cloncurry to relieve when those blokes went on holidays. Okay. What was it like to fly this particular aircraft? Well, when it was your first command of a bigger aeroplane, you thought you were Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> it, it only did about 100 knots. Uh-huh. But, it, oh, well, you just sat there and drove it. Okay. And how did it handle, uh, you know, dirt airstrips and that kind uh, of thing? Well, that's all we operated off, yeah. yeah. No trouble at all, yes. So a short takeoff and landing, would you say? Not really, no. It wasn't a stall aeroplane. But the strips were, they were actually, most of them were DC-3 strips, so we had plenty of, uh, except uh, occasionally you'd run into a short strip, and I remember an occasion out near Cheapy, they, <clears throat> the homestead rang up to the doctor and wanted him out there because this woman was going into labour. So we went out there and um, we loaded this girl on, and then the other people wanted to get on, and I looked at the strip and I said, no, we've got a, the load we've got is just enough for the strip. So we flew it home and then the doctor's panicking. He says, can't you go any faster? So I just pushed the throttles up and we got it to Charleville, uh, landed on the strip, took the 
the, the uh, ambulance met us on the strip and uh, unloaded the uh, the girl and she had the baby within minutes of getting in that there. <laughs> so you always flew with a doctor on board? Well, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, on a very seldom, you might go out on your own and pick something up, but no, mostly it was a, t a two crew operation, yeah. And so for a civilian like myself, flying a three-engined aircraft, does that pose particular challenges? Not really. Well, you've still got the asymmetric. If you lose one of the outboard engines, you've got the asymmetric situation. But uh, the centre one, it, it, there's no asymmetric with it. Well, I don't think they were really designed to fly with an engine out. We used to throttle an engine back when we were out in the bush and try it. But the performance was very poor. So this particular aircraft, what was it originally designed to do? As a sort of commuter and in the Channel Country okay. uh, carrying passengers and freight uh, through the station homesteads. And I believe it replaced the Dragon Rapide for the uh, Royal Flying Doctor Service. Well the, the Dragon actually operated the, the Channel Country services as well. So uh, <coughs> We had, we had dragons, and then when we got these, we replaced the dragons in the Channel Country and the Flying Doctor. Uh, he, he base got a drover, yeah. yeah. And what, what about your flying career, uh, Stuart? You, so, for example, once this one was out of action, did you take over another drover? Yeah, there was always one spare. And it, when, as the, the aircraft were due for maintenance, It'd go back to the Brisbane and the other one had come out to take their place here. So there were always two in service or were there more than that? No, no there were actually three in service, uh, Charleville, Cloncurry and Charters Towers and one standby driver. And how many years have you been flying? Well, I started to learn to fly in 1951 when I got called up in national service. Right. And from there... I got a, a flight instructor's rating and I was instructing at the Aero Club and then I applied for 23 Squadron and I flew Wurraways, Mustangs and Vampires wow. in 23 Squadron and then after that the TIA were looking for pilots, I put my name in the hat and I won a prize so that's, uh, and then I just went up from there, okay. yeah. I finished up on the A300, wow. yeah. No, as I said before, when you got a command, you thought you were Christmas. <laughs> Even though it was only a driver. <laughs> well, yeah, you say that, but I mean, it's a huge responsibility, isn't it? I mean, you are the captain and everything comes back to you, doesn't it? So there must have been times when you felt that pressure as well. No, what's behind you, if, were, if you're all right, they're all right. So, but that raises the question for me, you're in remote locations, there must have been times when you were required to, to do something that ordinarily an engineer would do, is that right? The worst we'd do would be change the spark plugs because they used to let, they'd let up and, and then we'd get one or two plugs out in an engine and start to run rough. Uh -huh. And then uh, on a very seldom occasions you had to change uh, a flat tyre they ran into prickles and things and, and uh, went flat on you. Not the same as an A300. Mm -hmm. no. 
Thanks very much, Stuart. I would really love to talk to you again. There are stories there that I can hear coming from the background that, that need to be told. Very much uh, appreciate hearing your story. Yeah, that's all right. Pleasure. Stuart Spensley there. So that's our episode. As a postscript, here's a classic little story for you. In 1979, when QAM was acquiring the drover that we've been talking about, it was serving as a children's cubby house in a backyard in suburban Brisbane. Now, to ease the transition, QAM volunteer David Bussey thoughtfully constructed a children's play aeroplane, and the volunteers exchanged that for what was left of the drover before they took it away. As always, if you are interested to delve deeper, you can visit the Queensland Air Museum website, qam.com.au, and click on Collection. Under Passenger Aircraft, you'll find a detailed provenance prepared by QAM historian Ron Cuskelly of both of our drovers. Yes, we have incomplete specimens of two drovers, 5006 John Flynn and 5007 Norman Burke. I should mention that the pilot and two passengers who were aboard 5006 at the time of the accident that Chris Weingarth was describing fortunately all survived the prang unhurt. Thank you for listening. It's been good to have your company. If you enjoy Mac One, please get the word around so that as many people as possible can know about and enjoy the episodes that we create each week from the Queensland Air Museum, Caloundra. We're in Pathfinder Drive, Caloundra, right by the Caloundra Airport, open from 10am to 4pm every day except Christmas Day and Good Friday. Come and see us soon. Bye for now.